0: Rob Langham, and welcome to episode three of Sounding Board. It's a while since we last teamed up, but we hope to up the regularity of our episodes from now on. Full of coordinates at the end of the show, but to start, I'd like to urge you to seek out Sounding Board that's board as in tired and distracted rather than a wooden thing at soundingboard.podbean.com, as well as via a simple search in iTunes where you can subscribe to all our shows without too much fuss. This time we have a packed show where we'll be reviewing Anna Meredith's Varmints as our album of the month and taking a look at the current state of the record shop business in the wake of the recent Record Store Day. But first we kick off with music news of the recent past and there's clearly only one place to start. So a quick hello to regular panellists Ben Woolhead and Neil Kennedy. Hiya. Hiya. Neil, Ben, Prince. Um, Very, very sad news to hear that he died at the unlikely age of 57 any comments on on his death and his legacy
1: um well i would say that if you were sort of uh, asked at the start of this year to name the two most iconic male solo artists still releasing music it would probably have been david bowie and prince and they've both been lost this year <clears throat> so it's a great loss really um i think uh it's a, a sort of telling um that even morrissey's been moved to pay positive tribute um, although he did focus on the fact that he was a long-serving vegan and strong advocate of the abolition of the abattoir, uh, his music would seem to be secondary. Um, he complained that all this was forgotten in the mainstream obituaries. Um, I mean, I think one of the best comments I read was an old quote from Eric Clapton, which um, he was asked uh, how it felt to be the best guitarist in the world, and he said, I don't know. Ask Prince. Um, I have to say, personally, um, I'm a bit of a heathen. I, I don't... Um, know or necessarily value his output that highly myself um i did actually listen to um dirty mind this weekend and I, I did quite enjoy that um and to be a real heathen i'd say my my favorite songs of his probably manic monday um and nothing compares to you i love as well um
2: but there you go yeah um yeah i think the the thing that i thought about was uh when he did his 21 nights at the year two i had a good friend who was living up in aberdeen who uh was a massive fan who went down to see one of the shows and obviously everyone was i think he was he was doing a new album which was called like 2001 of 21st century or something like that anyway so he was doing his 21 nights and um he said that people were sort of down the front screaming for all the hits and he'd sort of like okay get the guitar on into sort of raspberry beret he'd do the first verse and then just stopped and shouted too many hits and went into something <laughs> <else>. <laughs> which i think only he could probably have got away with
0: yeah i mean i think in in, in terms of my own feelings about him uh, at the very end of the 1980s radio one uh, ran a series of shows uh, and It was on protest music, which was absolutely terrific. And I've searched for it since. And I now have a friend who's going out with someone who works in the BBC archive. So I'm kind of, my (laughs) last resort (laughs) is going to try and ask him if he can unearth it, because it was a great series. And actually, while I'm here, I'll also mention one they did a few years before that called From Punk to Present, which was absolutely superb. But they seem to have sort of died a bit of a death and they're no longer kind of available anywhere. But anyway, this series, um, amid all the Woody Guthrie and Billy Bragg and lots of other tremendous stuff that was very much on, on, the, on the fringes. I remember Sign of the Times sort of being played in the middle of it and it resonated with me as something very different from the music of those other artists, but equally as powerful. So I think, you know, Prince's legacy is, is, is sort of incredible in terms of sort of endless inventiveness, etc. Um, but I would admit, as a non-mainstream person in the 80s, no matter how unconvincing I was in that stance... <laughs> I found it pretty impossible to get on board with the hair, the clothes, and, and the tinny production. I, it's just not my thing. And I think most of the Prince fans I know, and I'm acquainted with, are people who've come later and mm-hmm. have like had a yeah. chance to look at things with a bit of distance. At the time, it was just too corporate, too commercial, and just it seemed to represent, you know, the worst excesses of kind of 80s culture, um, even if musically you'd have to admit he was a fantastic producer and a fantastic artist. So so mixed feelings, I think, in lots of ways. Yeah. OK, um, so we're going to move on now and we're going to look <coughs> at our main uh, feature for, for this for this week, which is a very, very interesting one in view of like Record Store Day, which took place uh, about a week ago as and when we record. And Ben, you're going to kick off this this discussion, which we hope is yeah. going to sort of arise a few few interesting points.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's little doubt that um, we're talking about independent record shops generally here. Um, I think there's, there's little doubt that they're under serious pressure. And we're going to kind of hopefully cover some of the, the various issues there. Um, so shortly before Record Store Day actually happened, um, there's evidence of the, those pressures um, coming to bear on a couple of record shops. Um, one was Avalanche in Edinburgh, which is a, was a very good shop. I think it was quite long-standing, yeah, um, long. and I think it got mentioned in a previous podcasting as well, didn't it? Um, and another one, a very interesting one, was um, the Music Exchange in Nottingham, which was slightly unusual in that it was um, it was actually a social enterprise run by a homelessness charity, um, and it had, I think staffed up to staffed by volunteers. I think it had up to three hundred volunteers working there various times, um, and it was actually named one of the one of the best independent shops by both the Observer and the Telegraph. So it's a real shame that that's gone for, for many reasons. Um, so we thought we'd use this uh, record store day as a sort of springboard for discussion of the various, various issues. So just to kick us off, um, I was wondering what your favourite record shops are and why. And I guess this kind of will, will uh, go into what, what actually makes a good record shop. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Rob, what what are your thoughts on
0: that? Well, uh, I mean, I think Chuck Records in Oxford is, of course, at the moment my favourite record store. I live about 10 minutes from it, and I think it's fantastic. But I think if I was to pick one out that might be different from what all of us might be thinking, I I would say, uh, um, actually, and this is contradictory to what you were saying about it being independent record shops, it's a historical one, really. And I remember in the late 80s going up to London and just finding the Virgin Megastore just to be incredible. I mean, I couldn't get hold of all the bands on factory and creation and and those kind of records in maidenhead my hometown and just to go up and just to be able to get hold of the factory boxes those kind of artifacts and they just it was very comprehensive Mm. um fair play not massive fan of richard branson but i think in that respect (laughs) i think he certainly did did better than he did with his trains anyway (laughs) so um neil how about you Yeah. yeah um
2: one that is very uh, is always a kind of fond place in my heart was one up records in Aberdeen on Belmont Street. Um, it was my nearest independent record store, even though it was eighty miles away from the time where <laughs> I grew up. But that's the north of Scotland for you. Um, yeah, I I used to uh, I used to go there um, before I started uni, and then while I was at uni in Aberdeen, I went there a lot. Um, in terms of other ones. That I really like. Um, I've always like loved Spillers in Cardiff. Yeah, um, both, suppose, uh, yeah. sorry, getting in there before you. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I mean, both where it was in its original shop and where they are, it is now in the uh, in the arcade, Rapid, yeah. which is which is great as well. Um, and I, on Record Store Day itself, I, I felt I should go to a record store. I made a kind of special detour. I was down near Southampton and went into Romsey Records, um, mainly out of curiosity to see you know, what was, who was in there, what was being bought, what was, what had been sort of pumped out for it, but um, we'll maybe get onto that discussion yeah. in a wee while. What about yourself? Well,
1: I, I, as I was going to mention, I've lived in Cardiff for a while, I'm back there quite a lot, um, I have to mention the oldest record shop in the world, um, yeah. Yeah. and yeah, it's not suffered by the by the change of location, which I think um, I'll maybe come on to later, um, as with a lot of these places it's staffed by genuine music fans, which is great. Um, other two of us to mention um <clears throat> piccadilly is one in manchester which i think is absolutely fantastic um in the northern quarter um again it's got really clued up staff um i have been in a couple of times but generally speaking i get uh, things from their online shop um they're very sort of forward with their recommendations via email and i've never been disappointed with really anything i've bought um and the other is is the late great selector disc which is no longer with mm-hmm. us in nottingham um during my university years I spent a small fortune there um, again, they had sort of handwritten blurbs for yeah. loads of different um, albums and I, I you know was regularly tempted into taking a punt and never had um, any disappointments mm. really and There was also the sort of feeling that if you um, you 'd always be, always be looking for the nod of approval from the assistant when you, put, when you handed something over um, so in terms of, so what, so what actually makes these um good record shops other than the fact that one
2: it was actually the closest <laughs> to <was the> hand <laughs> truck as well. Um, what what sort of uh, what do you think makes for a good record shop? I think the you mentioned the staff and that's hugely important. I think I, when I, I remember going one of the first times I went into one up in Aberdeen, it was still there. The guy behind the counter actually said to me, "Oh, you're buying." the British sea Power album, oh, I do a club night, you know, in this bar around the corner where we play stuff like that and all these other bands. And it just opens you up to a world then of stuff that wasn't just, oh, this is my job and, I, you know, that'll be £10, please. It'd actually say, well, I'm really engaged with this stuff um, and I can sort of take it to another level of, you know, um, enjoyment um, and exposure to this, all these different types of music.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I mean, the curation is an important thing and there's quite a key difference and I don't want to get too local on people on this podcast because we're hoping to reach a national audience. But I think the difference between two record stores which are owned by the same people, Truck and Rapture, Truck is in Oxford in East Oxford and Rapture is in Whitney, um, which is a town about 10 miles west of Oxford. And they're both very good, but I think Truck is superior, possibly because of the clientele that live in the area, but also because there just seems to be a greater sense of curation, whereas Whitney seems to be uh, aping what kind of an average R price used to do in the old days, really. So, so I think that's key. And then I think a specialism is good. I think like having you know a certain sort of line, which means they're really good for jazz, or they're really good mm-hmm. for techno, or they're really good for hardcore, or whatever. I think mm. is is often something that can draw people towards a shop.
2: And that depends a lot as well on the staff who actually are there because if they've got that real kind of passion for that particular genre, that's going to you know, make a big diff- impact on their buying policy about certain things and their awareness of lab- certain labels as well.
1: well. The thing I was going to mention is, is kind of related to what you're saying about Truckee in the sense that it's very much embedded within the community, I think. Mm. So this is not just uh, selling music, but also promoting local music. They're promoting local labels, they're promoting local gigs, selling gig tickets. Um, I know Spurs um, has, a, you know, had, a, I think, probably a lot of record shops they do have message boards for, um, you know, anyone who wants to find new band members. That's something, so plenty of bands, I think, will have met through those, those messages um putting people in contact with each other um i did actually in sort of research for this i did actually speak to a friend who works at spillers and he said that was the thing that he would stress is most most often underestimated about independent record shops and i kind of i definitely agree that that certainly has that um spillers has that feel to it um and i think truck here does as well. Um, and to pick up on your point as well, I think Selected Disc was, was good in that you'd go and you'd buy an album and then someone would recommend something else yeah. to you. It was almost like pulling a thread and there'd yeah. be a whole section and you'd see this relates to this and you could kind of get into loads of different things. Um, just as a slight aside, but if anyone's interested in seeing the value of a, of a small independent record shop to community, I'd really recommend a documentary called Sound It Out which is about a record shop called Sand It Out. I'm not sure it's still actually alive, but it's in Stockton. So know. not a very promising <laughs> place for a record shop, but it's an absolutely fantastic um, documentary uh, about the, the sort of value of a, of a record shop within the small small town community, really. And it, it attracts anyone from the sort of people who are into sort of hard, happy hardcore sort of thing. People are into, they're Indians, a the guy who goes in with his boards of Canada t-shirt spending £100 a month um, there's a guy who turns up drunk from the pub every night, and said, "I've just heard this song in the pub. What is it? Can you send it to me?" Um, it's, 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 a, it's a great documentary. Um, so, just to, to move on, in um, what are we sort of, what do we think are the, the kind of main pressures that the record shops are, are facing? I mean, I, the two most obvious ones I've, I've noted here are probably—I'm not necessarily <clears> sure this is necessarily true—but the two most obvious ones are probably you know downloads and streaming, and then also online. Uh, you know, website sales and things, so Amazon basically. But
2: I think a big, I think those are definitely big factors. But I think one other big factor, um, which is a really difficult kind of circle to square, is um, direct buying from bands and labels that the the internet has enabled. Um, I mean, there was al- I think there was always opportunities to to buy direct from record labels if you bought you know, Melody Maker or whatever, you could rip something out and send your, you know, money in the post and say what you wanted and they'd get it to you. But now, and I think this came out of the the Avalanche announcement, um, they said one of the things they're really struggling with were bands, you know, on social media saying the album's going to be out in two weeks' time, you can pre-order it from here. And it... Just ends up driving all the fans, who are the ones who really care about getting the record, just to one outlet, you know, either the band themselves or the record label, and cutting. And it then makes the records label, that or the record stores, almost become a middleman that very few people are are, are going direct to to get the stuff, unless if they make a concerted effort to say, no, I'm going to wait until the day release. I'm not going to have it posted to him. I'm going to walk in there with my whatever it is, 15 quid, and get it myself. It's
1: a funny situation because in, in the sort of indie music world, this sort of DIY ethic is always seen as a good thing, but actually, in this sense, it's actually damaging the, the record stores. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously helping the labels and the bands. But um, one Raheem, I, I, I read that, and I, I did thought it was a very interesting point, but one thing that struck me is that... Um, Frank and Heartstrings actually they actually set up their own record yeah, shop yeah. to sell their I've album. been to it in um joined. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because they wanted somewhere that would stop physical copies of their album and there wasn't yeah. anywhere in Sunderland, so they yeah. set up their own shop and it, it's still going isn't it yeah, yeah. well it yeah. certainly
2: was when I was I mean I was there maybe a year or so ago yeah. but um I think, I mean, it was set up as a kind of pop-up thing, I think yes. specifically for the launch of an album, but they put on bands as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit more like being in someone's front room than yeah. being <laughs> in a sort of like working record store. Well, they, they said but, that their album's will have pride of place. Yeah, yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought it was an
1: interesting thing, rather than yeah, yeah. just saying we're just going to cite through, you know, physical copies through um, a website, we're actually going to set up a record yeah. record shop. And and they're obviously supporting also other local artists, and they're yeah. getting touring bands into to definitely make appearances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about um, one of the suggestions Avalanche made is that um, this vinyl boom is actually now working against them. Um, I don't know what you got your thoughts about that, Rob. They're sort of suggesting that the bigger chains are now capitalising on that and, and forcing them out or you know, cannibalising their sales, effectively.
0: I think that's possibly true. I mean, often the innovators are blown out of the water by the people who have more resources, more money, mm. and um, I think overheads are a big thing. There were some interesting... Uh, Conclusions in a couple of things I read online, or we read online recently, about uh, just uh, the bigger shops being able to sort of you know exist with um, discounts that are very very different from those um, with the smaller shops, and and so their relationship with the big publishers, the big publishers, it it just sounds as if you know everybody's getting on the vinyl back bandwagon now. I don't know what I'm necessarily the best person to ask about this because I've never really been a vinyl person. I, I always <laughs> just got either. tapes when I was yeah. when I was a kid, and then and then moved on to CDs almost seamlessly. And uh, albums were something that I just didn't have a lot of. So perhaps mm. uh, I don't know.
1: One thing, yeah, on that sort of on that sort of note, one thing that again that Avalanche mentioned was that um, the the new trading terms that the likes of HMV have means that they only um, actually paying for stock when it's sold so they can actually yeah. get in loads of stock sure. and mm-hmm. sit on it um, and that's not only mean they've always got uh, stock in when people need it it's also having a negative effect on the Indies because labels are deciding they'd rather wait for returns um, than repress um, copies so then the indies can't order and all these the major uh, chains are sitting on um, sitting on loads of stock and one thing I think that
2: you know we too remember with the vinyl revival is it's not just New bands bringing out their records on vinyl. It's a massive <clears throat> nostalgia trip of, you know, kind of retrofitted albums, you know, which were never, a lot of which were never released on vinyl, being kind of remastered back onto a format that they decided not to uh, do. I mean, when I was at a record store Romsey, they had crates of Springsteen Records, many of which I don't think ever actually came out on on LP because they'd moved over to CD and tape completely for when those came out in the 80s. This, um, is, I mean, this is a thing that's kind of an issue with Record Store Day, isn't it, that we, yeah. we might get onto, but it's definitely, <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, one, the final thing I was going to say on this point is that, um, back to Spillers, um, there's a, a non-music pressure, but sort of city centre redevelopment and gentrification, like Spillers was yeah. actually... Forced to move because of the redevelopment of Cardiff City Centre, and in fact, at one point, um, the developers referred to them as standing in the way of progress. Just, yeah, yeah, just lovely, lovely stuff. So they, (laughs) I don't think actually it's been that bad a move from because although they're not necessarily quite as visible on the um, on the the sort of street street front, they're actually in the arcades where a lot of the independent shops are are sort of based. Um, But I mean, that's them. But I think this is a pressure that's facing other record shops as well. Um and they've got the overheads of having premises of course, yeah. which
2: Amazon etc. I happened. mean that that's it can get into a bigger discussion about like local music venues yeah. as well and a yeah. number of those yeah, that have yeah. being forced to close through kind of, you know, uh, gentrification of yeah. the areas that they're in as well. Yeah.
1: So I'm also gonna so it, there's also this sort of decline in, in the larger national chains. So to come to you Rob, um when you mentioned Virgin Megastore, is is it is it a um is that something to be mourned or celebrated, do you think?
0: I think uh, probably celebrated, although, you know, you can argue it's a, it's a bit like the argument with, with beer and, and Wetherspoons, isn't it? I mean, there's the argument that, you know, oh, well, as long as the the actual raw materials, i.e. the records mm-hmm. or the beer are, are still available, it's a good thing mm-hmm. if someone's selling that good stuff, be it yeah. good music or good beer. But, but yes, I mean, I think that, you know, there is a danger that, you know, that... You know, with the terms thing that you just said about like being able to stock stuff without paying for it until it's sold, that, that is obviously going to harm smaller shops. And there is a certain amount of loyalty from people like ourselves who will go out of our way to pay, um at, at, go to the smaller shops. But um I think so. Although the latest, I mean, HMV, they do seem to be really lessening in number now. Um, I mean, FOP's an interesting one. I wanted to get Neil's take on this particularly because I, I, I have, you know, in the past been like quite a big fan of FOP when mm-hmm. I've lived near them. You know, there were a couple in London. There was one in Camden for a while. That was that was kind of one of yeah. the things
1: that was blamed for the demise of selector Disc, in Nottingham you know, actually when they yeah. opened up because yeah. they obviously didn't have the range of stuff, but they had it yeah. cheaper.
0: They were a lot actually, cheaper. They were yeah. good value. Yeah, it
2: yeah. was a very um, long running. Um, good store in Aberdeen, um, which then moved to have a sort of you know beyond um, Union Street on the main drag through Aberdeen. Um, but then I think the bottom fell out of the company as a whole. But there's still very good, um, a very good one. In in fact, there's two in in Glasgow. One on Briars Road, and well, right. there's one in city centre. But and that is a really excellent store. And I think it's it's a little bit dangerous sometimes to sort of equate. Um, as much as I love a really good independent record store, to think that the people who work in HMV and stock and you know do stock the you know the vinyl in HMV or stock the vinyl in FOP aren't as big music fans as no. the people who work in the independent uh, you know shops because I think they've probably got a huge passion for music as well. That's just the shop that they. I've got a job in, you know, I'll have the opportunity to work. And, yeah,
0: yeah. I think there's a danger that you know, like you know, while all this is going on, if the if the small shops and the bigger shops are quarrelling amongst themselves, Amazon and iTunes are just laughing all the way to the bank. So, I mean, yeah. it's it's like looking at squabbling on the left of politics. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The Tories quite happily kind of rubbing their rubbing <laughs> yeah. their hands in glee. And yeah. um I mean, I was in New York. I, mean, I go to New York quite a lot, and I was I remember. I think it's improved a bit since, but I went a few years ago, and I asked someone in one of my friends there where I could get some records and they literally could name me about two shops in the whole of Manhattan. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Manhattan. yeah, Maybe yeah. they're all in Brooklyn now, are they? Um, oh. oh, I think now, I mean, yes, it's improved a lot because there's been the backlash and the reaction and the vinyl things big there as well. This this would have been in about 2006, so 10 years ago. But it's also yeah.
1: gentrification, I guess, as well. They're just a place that's been priced out of being in Manhattan itself, yeah. I guess, yeah. as well. So. Yeah. Mm. Um, in terms of what I was going to say about the national chains, I mean, I uh, mean, Personally, my feeling is that they, they don't generally have much interest in music. The actual change themselves. Maybe the individuals do, mm. but it yeah. feels a bit like they could be selling dog food. You know, it's just <laughs> unit shifting, basically. Um, but um, And that they're now maybe paying the price for complacency. But my friend who works for Spillers gave me a very interesting point. And he, he said that actually, like, your, like you said, Rob, actually, if HMV uh, dies a death, then the idea of going to a shop on the high street to buy music will disappear from the the sort of public consciousness yeah. um much as indies might still survive so that's mm. quite an interesting perspective that the indies kind of feel like they might want the the major major mm. chains to survive as well yes um, um so if there's there's all these pressures what sort of things do you think record shops actually need to do to to survive um so we've, we've kind of i mean in-store <laughs> appearances i like think rough trade do a lot of those yeah. um truck do those as well and we've, we've mentioned uh pop rex limited mm. that's uh, that's franken heartstrings um store and then there's this sort of fashion for selling coffee that's that's from the record <laughs> shops and bookshops. Yeah. um there's that and you know hmv um, branched out to selling dvds which looks very foolish now <laughs> um you know is, is there that just that temptation to diversify do you think and that's a it's a, a dangerous temptation
0: well, I was talking to a friend of mine who's who's running a bookshop now at the weekend and, and she was saying that these are really just sidelines. I think the coffee, I mean, coffee is a good thing to do because the overheads aren't large. You know, once you get your machine set up and all that, you can make money on it. But really, there's no difference between someone paying even quite an expensive amount of money for a, for a cup of coffee, say like three quid, and someone coming in and buying four albums. You know, I mean, you know, still the bulk of the money that she gets from her book sales... Um, out outlast the the coffee sales, and I suspect it's the same with record stores. I think you know, trucker still is the main customers of the people who come yeah, in. One of the yeah. best
2: um, diversification schemes I've heard of is there is a, a record store which is in I think is in South Sea near Portsmouth, which is called Pie and Vinyl. Pie and Vinyl, yeah. and, uh, and that is that's, is, good, that's yeah. what that's how they've diversified. They that's literally that's just sell like pies <laughs> and vinyl <Bible laughs> no, records. No, no, no. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> not only are they
1: they're they're a very good. Um, uh, shopping that they're very much in, again in the community and they're yeah. involved with South Sea Fest and things yeah, like yeah, that yeah. so they're um, definitely part of the community and yes it's a great concept as well I think why I would say about the coffee thing is that like Truck for instance is actually quite a small shop and it's it slightly um, the fact that there's that much of the shop that's given to the, not a lot of the shop but some of the shop, of a small shop is given over to a coffee, area. <clears> I'm not entirely sure Like, it, it seems more suitable for a bookshop but I I don't know I mean personally I would hope that that places wouldn't have to diversify and just focus on what they do best on that sort of personal touch. And I'd always much rather get advice on and recommendations on what to buy from a person than from a, a logarithm on Amazon. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah, sure. Yeah. It seems that, yeah. So. I
0: think there are some slightly more contemptible versions of that pie and vinyl thing in Hoxton. <laughs> think, Probably yeah, yeah. things like sun-dried <laughs> sun tomato <laughs> and, and vinyls, or like Serrano um, ham and vinyls, five uh, pounds of cereal. And <laughs> pie, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just
1: finally on, on this subject, um, just to come back to record store day. Um, now, this you would think would be an uncomplicatedly <laughs> good thing, um, but
2: uh, is it is it still fit for purpose, do you think, Neil? As, um, you, as you understand uh, it. Yeah, sort of... um, from what I've seen, I mean, I'm not... I've got to say, if I went to a record store and wanted to buy something on, on record, I'd, I'd usually be looking for an album... You know, just by a band I knew was out and I wanted to get hold of. So I've never, I wouldn't ever really be someone who'd queue up from three in the morning onwards. But I've got to say, the one going going to um that wee store in Romsey, like um on record store day, and just having a look at what they had there. I mean, granted it was later in the day, so it may well have been that some you know some of the really good stuff had gone. But I think uh, one one thing that I saw, which was a, a Sonics um L- it was an LP of a Sonics live show from the 60s now i'm sure it's a really good um you know a really good show and uh, but I d- but it cost the, the price was ridiculous you know um and i think you for certain things you know kind of albums like live albums which have possibly even been out but of them being kind of reissued later and they're asking 40 quid for something you know i just think is starting to make a bit of a mockery of Um, what the concept of it is Um, and I think sometimes there's a with the reissue culture that goes on through Record Store Day it becomes less about here's something new here's something interesting here's something you wouldn't have been able to get elsewhere before actually just being like we've just packaged it up again and now we're charging 50 quid for the novelty of being able to get in and get it
1: I think It is called Record Store Day, not Independent Record Store Day. But from everything I've been reading, it does seem to be the major record stores and the major record labels that are now benefiting. Um, I mean, just to take um, three examples, um, uh, the vinyl distributor Kudos. Again, you'd think they would be um, very uh, supportive of this. Um, but they actually said that, this is two years ago, an article that, that was I came across, um, that Record Store Day is actually clogging up pressing plants. Mm. So that means that's benefiting major labels who are ordering uh, vast amounts of, of uh, copies um, at the expense of smaller labels. And another friend of mine who's actually in a, in a band and runs his own label um, has been really frustrated by this because he's getting jobs bumped all the time because yeah. they're not significant enough for yeah. the plants. Um there was also an article written by Nathaniel Cramp of Sonic Cathedral, um, sort of shoegazy label, um, for The Guardian last year. Um, and he described it as being just another marketing opportunity for established bands such as Mumford Sons and Mewtwo and an excuse for major labels to dump a year's worth of back catalogue reissues and aha picture discs on unsuspecting shops. So that's the the label, small labels um, are getting uh, getting very frustrated by it as well. And then he actually made a point of of contacting several shops, I think he said about 50 shops, Mm. and he was amazed that there was not only disgruntlement from a lot of them, there was actually outright um, hostility Hostility to to it. um, And... The part of the issue there is, is, this, is this is a different uh, issue to the trading terms. But with record store day, um, shops have to buy the stock up front, and there's no chance of return. So you've got to be a, a big player to have that resources. It's too much of a risk for a lot of the smaller shops to take. Um, so this this idea, and, and then also Avalanche, for instance, said that it feeds this this feeding frenzy, um, which is then just benefiting the, the major the major chains. So as, as far as I it's, can see, it's it's, it's no longer. Well, it's saying no longer. It's it's
2: not benefiting the people who really need helping. I would say. Yeah, I, I almost wondered. I mean, I say this as someone who went on the day, you know, and was adding to the melee. But like, would it be better if you really want to support a local record store of actually just going the following weekends <laughs> you know, and uh, spending your money then when there isn't the sort of a the marquee, you know, day that uh, is, is everyone's supposed to rally around
0: absolutely yeah yeah i mean i think there was also a point made in a couple of articles i read online about a lot of people using it as an opportunity to then subsequently head to ebay oh uh, yeah When that they're the other big winners
1: from it aren't they which is which is a real a real yeah. shame i mean i got um my facebook <laughs> feed was sort of full of full of friends showing off their hauls yeah um but yeah it's um it, to me it d- just doesn't seem to be quite um it's, it's not doing the business for for the smaller smaller uh indies anyway um, my, my Spiller's working friend was very diplomatic about it and uh, didn't,
2: didn't <laughs> decline to, to comment. Yeah, yeah to, right. Yeah.
0: cons. <laughs> okay, well, that was a great conversation. Thanks for leading on that, Ben. Um, really, really interesting. So any feedback you have at all, um, tweet us at soundingboard69 or send us an email at com. Um, We're going to move on to our album of the month now, having looked last month at Field Music's uh, Common Time and before that at Savage's um, second album. And this is an album that's been out for a few weeks now by Anna Meredith, who's possibly a new name to a lot of people, um, although not so much in the classical world as it turns out. Her record is called Varmints. And ironically, just as we wrote off Edinburgh Music last week, Young Fathers Apart, here comes Anna Meredith, 38 years old. And we're trying to pretend that's not very young. Um, it does seem young to me. Uh, she's been two decades working in classical music. Um, something I know about as much about as Game of Thrones, uh, admit, um, and that's hashtag humble brag. Uh, she said that she found classical audiences snooty, um, which is perhaps not the most surprising piece of news that we've ever heard. Um, although she has performed in a service station, which probably didn't go down too well. Um, Interestingly, she's found the cost of making a pop or rock album, whatever you want to call it, much, much higher than the classical one. She says there's less infrastructure around like creating a record, although given that it's quite a heavily produced and very kind of meticulous album, I would say that's possibly one of the things that's added to the cost. What does it sound like? Um, Well, there are lots of crescendos there's the influence of arcade games, but in a less cartoonish way than, say, Crystal Castle's. <clears throat> um, Battles particularly on their first album Mirrored is maybe another influence although the vocals are, are far more crowd pleasing than that band's vocoder on heat yes I'd yes, <laughs> um, say so if, if you do pick it up or you do go onto YouTube or wherever to check it out um, opener Nautilus is perhaps a less than accessible opener but it's <laughs> worth sticking with it tracks two to four Taken, Scrimshaw and Something Helpful are all absolutely superb and mark this out in my opinion as a stunner I think this is a really terrific album um, so Neil in view of that Edinburgh-Glasgow musical debate can the former claim South Queensferry's Meredith as their own
2: uh, yeah well, uh, well I definitely think South Queensferry is closer to Edinburgh than it is to Glasgow she went to stall so. in it <laughs> <laughs> oh right oh so, yeah, there well, you go yeah, 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 no, yeah definitely yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure I can name many other bands or artists from South <laughs> Queensferry really yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I thought it was a great album. I really I did enjoy it and I think it's one I came to with really no prior knowledge about uh, what she was doing, even really about her kind of classical background. Um, I did not expect the... I mean, you can see it now, I suppose, now knowing more about her classical background and the fact that she's been a composer and used to putting together lots of different disparate elements, <clears throat> but the fact that she had... There is almost a kind of math rock element to some of the songs, um, particularly as a song, I think, called um shill or yes i've known that again sounded like some of it sounded like don caballero or something like that i was really really surprised and and then um the way the melding it's sometimes of yeah quite kind of mathy guitar and really insistent rhythms but then with vocals both male and female that were almost just kind of like indie pop they could have been taken Mm. straight off a kind of you know mid-80s you know Postcard or Sarah Records, you know, like song or something like that. And the juxtaposition was weird but beautiful and, and worked really, really well. And the moments as well, particularly towards the end, the closing track is a beautiful um, piece of uh, violin music, sort of fiddle music, uh, <laughs> which um, which is just just really, really fantastic. I thought, um, and I think there were sometimes there were elements that I sort of thought, what's the through line here beyond? it being very rhythmically driven um but i thought there was enough diversity to always keep you engaged with with everything going on and then enough in common that you didn't think well this is just some someone's kind of sketches from across a career of trying to come up with um you know some different kinds of music to what they've maybe been doing previously it's a really impressive record and glad that we uh we we sort of gave it a shot to review
0: yeah and Ben
2: <laughs> um, well just to pick up something that Neil said I, I've actually had the last Battles
1: album on the car recently yeah, yeah. and it's amazing how you, you hear Nautilus the first track and it's all this sort of ascending quite aggressive horns and it sounds completely unlike Battles but then some of the other songs particularly that song Shill uh, does actually sound like Battles and it's yeah. that that real sort of insistent rhythm um, on all the synths and the, the strange drums um, I, I really enjoyed that song particularly um, for me um, I, I couldn't well, as soon as I started reading about the album, before I'd actually heard it, I couldn't approach it without thinking of Julia Holter, um, yeah. whose album last year, I think I said in an earlier podcast, was possibly my favourite from last year. Um, I mean, the, the, the sort of similarities are there. She's a female classical composer um, with a number of very out there projects behind her. I mean, I think I read that she's, um, she's actually composed some music for MRI scanners at some point. Um, and then after this, she's then gone into sort of avant-pop yeah. territory. Um, more electronic um, than uh, than Julia Halter um I think yeah Nautilus is like you say maybe not the most accessible um first track, but it it's an indication that what follows is is going to be something quite unusual and quite striking, and it's followed by this song taken, which is a really a sort of a pop song with a very sweet sort of vocal and and chorus um which is it's not intimidating or foreboding, which I think the first song is. Um, and it suggests there's there's not really any pretension there which I think Julia Holter could possibly you know you could argue she's a little mm. bit pretentious um, there's a lot of sort of playfulness and levity to this album definitely um, yeah. which, which isn't there with the Julia Holter album either I don't think um, I think I uh, think I think I read Q describe it as being visceral and cerebral which I think is right it's, it's not an academic exercise she, she's a obviously a very um, you know, she's a composer she's, a, she's a, a very talented studied musician but it's it's quite a sort of um, free and, and playful album um, and I, yeah she, she was quoted as saying um, she, she's all she's ever done is writing music with complete creative freedom and I think creative freedom is, is the thing that comes across from this album it's, it's all over the place but in a very good way yeah. Um and I, I, yeah, I'd hard to, yeah, I find it hard to say that I've heard anything quite like it <laughs> over the course of the album, anyway. Yeah, the play- anything, to
2: add now? Yeah, yeah, the playfulness definitely comes out. The, that that mm. track, Scrimshaw, that you mentioned, I thought mm. by the end it was sounding like almost kind of like lemon jelly or something mm. like that. very mm. kind of a real kind of samba feel to it. Mm. Um, I thought one misstep. There's a track in the middle of the album which I think is called Something Helpful. Yeah, um, track, which yeah. I thought sounded a little bit like the synths were a bit, you know. I just can't get enough, you know, to passion. Yeah, <laughs> <with that>, yeah. <laughs> Let's not start on that. But yeah. the, vo- the the vocal approach on that track saves it because mm. it has a very kind of. Um, it's not a studied vocal at all. It's very honest and and very kind of clear and um, so it kind of wins you over to its uh, to what's trying to do and and sometimes I think putting together quite kind of you know hard-sounding guitars or quite tough rhythms with synths that sometimes sound a bit kind of lo-fi and naff on occasion. It's a really interesting juxtaposition that works really, really well.
0: Great. Well, thanks for your feedback, guys. Um, and I think we're sort of unified there that it's a terrific album from Anna Meredith. Uh, really, really good debut. Um, so we're coming towards the end of the show. In the mailbag, uh, Tom Furnival-Adams he pretty much agreed with us that Field Music's album, which we reviewed last time, Common Time, probably wasn't their best, but thought our reflections on the influence of parenthood on music-making did warrant discussion. Mm. And then we've had our first outraged comment not actually (laughs) aimed at us, Um, but Oxford Gigbot uh, has perhaps (laughs) rightly objected to Trembling Bells describing an Oxford audience as a posh pit, something that I I told on them about in the tweet. (laughs) Um, so again, oh, uh, from
2: Edinburgh, oh, not from Glasgow. Aren't they? Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Not Edinburgh, no, possibly. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. But, you know, don't abuse your audience. Anyway,
0: um, so again, in terms of where to find us, to straight listen, soundingboard.podbean.com, to subscribe iTunes, and please do leave us a review, which I'm told goes a long way to making us more discoverable. On Twitter, which is where most people have interacted with us today, and we've been very pleased with how people have interacted with us, it's been a lot of fun. It's at Sounding Board69. Um, and for longer missives, our email account is soundingboard at gmx.com. And Facebook, we're on there as well. I think you can just search for Sounding Board. Also, if you do follow us on Twitter, you will see us link to Spotify playlists we've constructed with the aid of our good friend David Cox based on each episode. Do look out for those and we may at some point try and come up with these in advance of a show but (laughs) in some ways we quite like to see how freeform the discussion is what we end up talking about and then we can like create the playlist afterwards so we'll be uh, putting our heads together after this and try to come up with some suggestions based on what we've talked about so goodbye then and thank you for listening and for all your social media interaction thus far Um, we'll be back much much sooner I promise with episode 4 perhaps even as soon as a week or two from now